Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Scott Belsky, a friend of mine and a friend of the firm. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Eric. The book is The Messy Middle, and you have been, this is what, five years in the making that you've been thinking about this, writing about this. Where did the idea come from and when did you know that this was going to be your book out of all the ideas you could have made into a book? (laughs) Well, this started as an organic effort capturing the you know, the gems that meant something to me, whether it was in a board meeting or on a 1 a.m. conference call with an entrepreneur or sitting with a product team, making a decision to kill something, um, helping a founder, you know, shut down his or her company. Um, and a lot of experiences on my own going through a uh, five years of bootstrapping, venture back company, getting acquired, joining a VC firm as a general partner, uh, going back into product and, uh, and leading culture change. It's sort of been like a, ongoing effort to capture the little things that I think about or observe. And it became this Evernote notebook of maybe 800 or so different insights with little kind of examples and quotes from other people and stuff like that. And then I was on a plane one day a few years ago or a couple of years ago, being like, gosh, I really should get more serious about this project and try to organize it. And what I realized is that all the insights really fell into three camps. They were either endurance, like enduring the lows, enduring volatility, uncertainty, anonymity, ambiguity. They were about optimizing, you know, optimizing how a team works, how a product works, or how you work as a leader. Or they were about the final mile, like how to not screw it up, the things that you suddenly need to think about that you don't think about during the rest of the journey when things come to a close. And, and that's kind of how I structured the project. How do you define the middle? Well, the middle is the volatility. The middle is the... Uh, the endless ups and downs with no clear end in sight, where you are trying to simply achieve a positive slope, where every low is a little less low and every high is incrementally higher. And you're trying to create rewards where there aren't any. You're trying to sort of hack you know, the doping response system that you know, typically progress begets progress, but we're not making any progress. What do we do? And it's all about just finding anything that works and doing more of it whether it's, again, you know, how your team works or something in the product or you know, as you're trying to find product market fit or when you're trying to scale the product, you're, you're simply trying all these things, but it's really an endless game of optimization. So, so to me, like the middle embodies volatility, endurance, and optimization, which is, of course, you know, a, a big part of every journey. The problem is, is that we're so obsessed with the starts and finishes of everything, and that's all that's basically written about or covered in the press, and I just didn't think there was enough discussion on navigating the volatility. Let's tease out some of these concepts a little bit. You mentioned the three concepts, enduring, optimizing, and the final mile. What do you think is a a big misconception or something that's not commonly understood for for each one or or something that we can uh, get into here? Yeah, I'll try to pick just an example of each. There are many, but um, I would say on the endurance side, you know, there's the myth that we are motivated enough by mission alone to stick with it long enough to figure it out. And I actually believe that the uh, motivation from the end state, you know, and the, the conviction you have and the, the dream, you know, may be enough to get you to quit your job or to take on a bold new endeavor within a big company or to take risk. 
But two or three weeks later, shit gets real. You know, you start to realize that you're falling behind on parts of your life that all these other headlines you're reading about friends and others making so much traction makes you feel like you're making no progress. And you, you lose the reward system that we're all basically born with, which is short term. Everyone relies on getting the grade, getting the paycheck. You know, I, one of my favorite quotes from one of the 99U conferences that our team um, has always done, but did in the early days, we had Fred Wilson speak. And he said that the two greatest addictions in life are heroin and a weekly salary. <laughs> it's like, you got to, you know, you're, when you're unplugging yourself from the short term reward system, don't fool yourself into thinking that you can be fine by being governed by the long term promise or opportunity. And so you have to hack the reward system. And, you know, I, I talk about a number of, uh, of ways people do this, you know, talk about with Behance, we used to type in Behance into Google and get Enhance, Enhance. And it was like, damn it, at some point, will we no longer be a mistake? I'm also a vegetarian and the team is like, hey, when we make 100,000 members, will you eat meat? And I was like, sure. You know, I never thought that would happen. So you got you to gotta, you gotta just find ways to, to celebrate kind of and manufacture to some extent these wins along the way, as long as they're not fake, you know, as long as they are not actually incentivizing the wrong sorts of behavior. So it's important that these rewards that are manufactured are keep you on the right course as opposed to the wrong one. And how do you determine what, what are fake motivations versus, versus the right kind of motivation, fake wins versus Well, I think, for example, when teams uh, uh, celebrate, well, I think celebrating financing is a fake win. It's not necessarily means the stakes are only higher, and sometimes it doesn't necessarily mean that you're making progress, but sometimes it does, which is okay to celebrate to some extent. When you buy an award or when you pay for press, you know, um, you get some article written because you hired a PA, PR agency. Does that motivate the right behaviors? Like, should the team feel like, oh, we should do that more? No, because that's not going to help your product succeed. Whereas milestones that are manufactured that you celebrate along the way that are indicative of the product or network getting richer, those are, you know, something that needs to be pulled out and celebrated. And, you know, I talk about in the endurance section, how much the responsibility of the leader to narrate their team through the journey, like how important that is. And I use the analogy of driving a car trip for 10 days with people in the back seat with the windows blacked out and people have no idea where they are. They have no idea whether they're making progress or sitting in traffic, you know, on the 101 or whatever. But if you walk them through, if you're ta- talking them through what they're seeing, what they're passing, you know, that is like the granularity of progress, the short-term reward sensation that a team needs. And, you know, a lot of leaders don't do that naturally. Yeah. So that's one of the things on the indoor side. You know, I think that typically we feel like we can be motivated by the long-term pursuit and that's not true. And then on the optimization, I mean, gosh, like I think that so much is misunderstood. I guess if I, I'll pick one and then I'll, turn it over to you again. But I guess one, one on the optimization side is the sort of balance between process and alignment. I think that people just assume that process is a good thing. Their job is to add process when there are problems, like you throw a process at it. It's easy when a team comes together and it's just a few people fully aligned with the vision and they're all sitting around a table. Everyone is aligned. You know, people just, you don't have to make a, too much of a plan because everyone's just working and making progress together. But when you start to have people who are there just for because it's a job or working in a different region or a different function. That's when alignment sometimes slips and the tendency is to throw a process at it with meetings, with check-ins, with frameworks, with all this other stuff. And the problem is that slows down teams. And so I think 
one of the things I you know thought about a lot in the endure, in, the, in the optimization category is how do you make sure that leaders do other things to achieve more alignment before throwing more process at the problem? And one of those things, by the way, is design. That beauty of a prototype that's just worth a thousand meetings because everyone just sees the value proposition as opposed to debates it. You know, I think that those are some of the tricks you can use to use alignment as opposed to more process. Yeah. I, I want to touch on one of the things you, you read about in the endurance section, which is when to keep going versus when to pivot or when to kill something. Talk a little bit about your framework for that and how that's how that's evolved over time because a lot of big companies today, or some of them look like Slack, for example, obviously look very different from where they started. How do you think about, about that? Sure. It's, it's a great question because I think, especially as an investor, is one of the most common questions we get from um, entrepreneurs as seed investors. Uh, hey, you know, I, I, should I quit this or should I stick with it? You know, it's a year and a half in. You tried the product in two different ways. It hasn't worked. What should I do? And how many entrepreneurs are in that moment where they're trying to make that decision? And to me, it's really less about how hard it is at that moment and whether there's lack of hope or not. And it's more a test of how much conviction you still have in that end state. When you start something, you have a lot of conviction for the way the world should be or the way that industry should be or that problem should be solved. And then as you go about it, you either gain or lose conviction based on what you're learning. And a lot of people lose conviction. They are like, oh, actually, it's different than I thought. Or the market dynamics are actually quite the opposite of what I anticipated or whatever. But they feel like they just need to stick with it because they committed, because they raised money or whatever else. My attitude is, if you've lost conviction, quit. Do something different. Life is too short. Everyone will understand. However, if you have just as much, if not more conviction in that end state based on what you've learned, but you still have not figured out product market fit, you're still going back and forth with different ideas, you're, you know, you're still struggling on the go-to-market, stick with it. I mean, you're just in the messy middle. It's just a matter of managing the volatility. But are there any lessons from the Prefer experience? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, you know, Prefer, just an awesome team. It was an idea that I originally had and met Julia, who was a CEO. That the team came together to solve this problem around independent professionals and how they um, build their businesses through referrals. And you know, it's, it's actually a good example. I think that there was a tremendous amount of conviction in that. And the team spent almost three years trying at least three different, completely different approaches to solving this problem. And while the conviction of the independent service economy being a big business, that I don't think that ever was lost in the process. The team did start to lose conviction in the kind of marketplace for referral idea based on a number of experiences the team had in, in the series of products tested. And, uh, and it was one of those things. And actually, you know, Julio team decided to shut down the company with at least 30% of the capital left and, uh, and return it to investors. And it was, you know, it was one of those moments where as a, you know, as a board member, I was like, okay, you know, should I just keep pushing and encouraging the team to stick with it? Or should I really tune into what they have learned and whether their conviction is higher or lower than it was originally about, you know, about the plan? Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's, it's easier when it's, when it's not working versus when it's, it's working, but it's not working great. And there's something else that you could be doing that could be working phenomenally well, but the thing you're doing is working enough that you still believe in it but might have an upside that's, that's capped. How do, how do you wrestle with that? Once, once you feel like it's just good enough, I find that you start losing great people. 
you certainly can't recruit great people. If your growth is subsiding, as entrepreneurs and investors, by the way, we're in a business of exceptions. You know, we're in a business where you are doing something that is a bit contrarian and or something that is at first extraordinarily naive and just turning it on its head. You know, if that's what you've signed up for, I, I don't think that you can coast to a good outcome. I think you have to be more um, decisive and you have to make bolder moves. So, so I don't know, that, that's just my vote. I mean, I'm sure some folks would say, hey, you know, you know, I don't know, let's go for an acquihire. I don't know what the alternative is. I find that when you hear all the famous pivots, whether it is Slack or whether it is Twitter or others, they were decisive, bold moves made when things weren't necessarily hitting the fan, but something else captured the imagination of the team more than anything else. Yeah. One thing I also want to cover is, is something you write in the book is about friction. Uh, you talk about friction brings us closer and how we need more friction in our lives, not less. And I've been thinking, maybe, maybe it's in different contexts, but in the context of working relationships, how if you are frictionless, if you, know, if you come on time, if you don't start drama, if you just make it easier for people to engage with you, you'll get more done as a team. I know you mean something different by it, but talk about sort of the, the tension between friction and frictionlessness. Yeah, sure. And you know, I'm fascinated with friction because it's something we try to always eliminate in our lives, in our personal lives, in our, you know, in our professional lives, and in products, by the way. We're always trying to remove friction. And yet, I find that friction has a very important role in teams uh, being at peak performance, in products actually getting the right customers in the door that have some vested interest in making the product work for them. But the, on, the, on, the, on the team side, I have always found that when people are willing to fight it out, you cover the full terrain of possibility. But when people start to show apathy in a sense of like, oh, I'm fine with whatever. Like, I don't want to have this hostile environment. So I'll just like go with whatever. You know, when you do that, you're screwing over the customer. If you think about it from a design space of possibility, like all these different, you know, terrains and mountains and valleys of, of choice. And you and I are debating the solution to a problem or how we go about something in our product or business. You know, the more we debate and the more we get you know, a little aggressive and forcing each other to see the full space of possibility, like that is how we really find the edge that becomes the center. But as soon as one of us just quits, that's gone. And so how do you have a culture that fosters friction? How do you hire people that can sustain and contribute to friction to some degree? And also, how do you not make it personal? But I, I, that was always important to me. Behance, we were, especially in the early days, we had a lot of fighting. And, uh, and I've been part of many startups that had, uh, you know, vociferous debates, you know, about different choices, but the teams were either killed by it or made much stronger in each case. Yeah. Another thing you talk about in the book is, is self-awareness. And you talk about, you know, balancing intuition and data, when to go with your gut, when people might not agree. And I find it interesting because there's sort of, one is sort of, you know, evaluating your own epistemic status, which is like, you know, being self-aware about how much you know versus how much you don't know. But then there's sort of a question, which is, are you even good at evaluating, at evaluating how much you do and don't know to begin with? So sort of like multiple abstractions of self-awareness that are needed. How do you think about broadly, like when to balance intuition and data and when to trust yourself versus, versus trust others? Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of goes back to my belief that the science of business is scaling and the art of business is the things that don't scale. And in some way, data-driven decision-making is the right way to scale a business and to make decisions in mass and also to inform the most crucial decisions, you know, even if they're, you know, in, in a moment. Uh, however, what engenders trust and relationships with brands and, and what makes 
people have an affinity towards a product that is essentially the same as something else on the market. You know, what are the forces at play that drive you know, adoption of new technologies in those spheres? A lot of those forces were ultimately you know, the result of intuition and someone's kind of unique way of looking at the world. You know, it's, it's creativity, basically, right? It's, you know, where does creativity come from? God only knows. I mean, is it a mistake of the eye? Is it childhood trauma? Is it, you know, weird influences you have that are repurposed through the neurons connecting in an unexpected way? I mean, that, but it's the same force in business. So I do, I do think that you have to protect kind of the, you know, the, the art side. And so how do you balance the two? I mean, at least I'll tell you, my, my attitude is have a bias towards data you know, really try to empower the machine because that is how you scale and let people do it, what they're good at, you know, the folks on the line and making decisions every day. You know, I, I think every now and then, you know, you, you come across something that just feels like it's a differentiating factor that maybe is a little ahead of its time. It doesn't have the proof points yet, but you just feel like this is going to stand out. It's a matter of taste. It's like fashion. You adopt it before others. And if you can if you can have that insight and then you can push it to your team and get them to buy in, I think some of the greatest products in the world are made that way. Are there general rules about age or experience in terms of, you know, when you, like one simple one might be like when younger, trust yourself less or, or be more, you know, epistemologically modest about what you do or not know, or your, even your ability to evaluate how much you do or don't know? That's a good question because I actually think that it's people that are too experienced right. that end up starting to have like a false sense of security and arrogance and, you know, one of the things I think about with this messy middle is, you know, that we're not our best at the lows because we make decisions out of fear. We're not our best when things really work out or when we become successful because we start to falsely attribute the things we did to the things that work. And so it gives us this false sense of confidence and that really skews our decision making. So I, I don't know. I always like to have that appropriate dose of paranoia that the newest people in the room see something that I don't because I'm jaded. I also like to often ask the question to people around me, you know, if you were me, what would you do? Because I, I, I've oftentimes you'll get, you'll get different answers, especially from different people at different points in their career. And you can ask why. And you might ask someone right out of college, like, this is an intern, what would you do if you were me? And they might say something completely ignorant and naive. But there also might be a element of, huh, like, I see how you see it. I would never have seen it that way because I've been in it for too long. You've got to do little little hacks like that in order to keep your self-awareness intact. Is there an example that comes to mind from one of your companies or investing or, or even personal life where you ask somebody, hey, what would you do if you were me? And then they gave you an insight that you that made you think about something in a different way or that you took? Gosh, I mean, many. I think I ask it oftentimes when I kind of present strategy or present you know something you know, in my day job, I'll often ask teams, you know, would you have done differently? And sometimes I'll get like a, you know, a response around the fact that I missed the framing. You know, I didn't frame it. And it's like, oh, yeah. And I jumped right into it because I think about this all day, every day. And so at some point when I present it to others, I'm like assuming everyone will just pick up where I kind of left off or where I am. And so I think it's a reminder to be repetitive, tell the story many times. Like that's kind of what, what the feedback that I get sometimes when I ask that question is, you know, make sure that you keep in mind, like, the story needs to be told many times. New people join every day and you know, slow down a little bit. How else do you think about keeping yourself either honest or maybe a better way, more precise way of putting it is you're not suffering from too much success or failure. Besides the question, what would you do if you were me? Is there any other things you, you do to sort of get an accurate sense of 
of your skills, of how you're perceived, of whether you're evaluating things correctly? One of the things that I like to do is always push people to like talk about the elephants, you know, the things that are not being said, the things that are, um, that are sort of third rail topics or that they're afraid you'll disagree with them on. And, you know, how do you have a culture where people are still really challenging you? I feel like as anyone develops expertise in any field, they start to intimidate others from disagreeing with them to some extent. Or if you disagree with them, you disagree relative to what they had said rather than sharing a genuinely new insight. And so I think it's always about anchoring yourself with the fact that the, the more strongly you feel, the more likely you are to miss something. The more senior you are, you know, the more jaded you may be. And really stress test you know, all of your opinions with radical truthfulness around you, you know, what, what people are really seeing and feeling and you know, trying to figure out what your blind spot is. I don't think any of us really know, you know how we appear to others. We know what we see in the mirror, but what do we do? We really know what other people see, you know. And and I I'm always kind of trying to figure out where where, where am I missing and how do I? Because uh, ultimately, as a leader, you want to you want people to be receptive to your ideas, you know. And the further off you are, the less receptive people will be, and you'll never make any traction, right? So I think that's an important thing to ask yourself as well. Yeah, we, we've talked about intuition as it relates to companies, and you mentioned you know early on. Uh, versus later on, but maybe about as it relates to people, that could be another element to look at. For example, you know, I'll, I'll have an intuition on somebody and I, I won't know, hey, you know, intuition is obviously an evolutionary process and there's a lot of wisdom to it, but it could also lead us astray. So it's hard to know when you sort of get a positive intuition or negative intuition about a, a person and, and you're really to, you know, to work with that person or, or likability for that person. How do you sort of think about evaluating people as it relates to first instincts like how, how much do you measure, uh, weigh that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I look for a few different things. You know, I know it's so cliche, but, but it is really all about people. And I've been in startups that I don't invest in startups that I, I didn't think should have succeeded based on their initial idea, but it was just the incredible group of people behind it that I think really made it happen. And to me, like one of the big, biggest tests is every conversation I have with the founder become a step function more interesting than the one before it. Or is it a replay? I think it's interesting to have a really you know, great pitch and a conversation with somebody. But the next time you talk to them, is it sort of the same or do you just go to an, a wholly different level? And, and to me, that's a great limits test because not only will, will they do that with you, but they'll do that with their team and they'll do that with the way they're thinking about the product. And that is, like, I think, such an important trait to look for you know, in a founder. So another thing I, I think a lot about, especially as an investor working with founders, but also hiring product leaders for teams is you want people that won't overly polish or promote the truth. And you want to see evidence that while someone is trying to market their ideas, they're not overtly promoting beyond what's true. And I remember pitches where I admired something and was corrected being told, oh, actually, that's like a readily available data set, or, oh, you know, that, that actually is something that many people have done. That's not special, but here's what it is. Versus others where, you know, I got an email the other day from someone telling me like how great their retention was, but without any context of over what time period. And then I followed up and said, well, great, that's some really high retention over a time period. And he said, oh, it's seven days. And I'm like, why? It's just you lose, you lose some confidence you know, in, in the founder when that sort of thing happens. So I also, you know, aside from the step function, more interesting test that I shared with you is also measuring, is this person a promoter 
Or is this person someone who's going to say it like it is, is also a great marketer. But when, when shit hits the fan, you know, two years from now, this person will be talking about what's not working as opposed to making it seem like it's still working. In, in your view, what makes great marketers? I'm not asking what separates the people who do from those who don't. I'm saying what makes someone the ability to you, for you to say, hey, they're a great marketer. Is it their ability to sort of make memes, you know, summarize things in catchy ways, understand how people use the internet? When you say someone's like maybe like a Sam Altman or something, like what, what makes someone a great disseminator of ideas? Yeah. I mean, if, if I think about the marketers that I admire most in my life, I feel like they are, first of all, they're great storytellers. I think that they have high signal to noise. So you don't lose your interest in, or, or confidence or, or they don't lose credibility. And I think they're also consistent. You know, I think that they are, they're not just adapting many other people's languages or, 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 or methods, but rather you know, finding their own and sticking to it. To me, that's like a great marketer as a person, but also as a brand. And I think everything, everything I just said can apply to a brand as well. And what's cool these days is you can see how people are on social media. You can see how they send communications and, and what they say and what they don't say. And you can get a decent sense of whether this person will be a good marketer of their product. How do you measure positive slope in people? You know, when you, when you come across somebody, man, man, that person has real positive slope. How do you assess that? Yeah, in terms of the tendency, you mean to be able to you know, make every low less low, every high yeah. higher type of thing. Yeah. It's a few things, right? It's it's obviously what we're what you're really asking is: Are they good at enduring the lows, or are they good at optimizing the highs? And how do you test that? And I think on the enduring the lows front, are they a good narrator of the story? You know, are they willing to kind of bring people through that car ride with the windows shut out? and annotate it for people? Or are they just like a heads down data driven leader who is not maybe a good narrator and should therefore lead only in a big company, but not in a small startup or new or new product. And I also think on the optimizing side, are they obsessed with not only fixing things that are broken, but also maximizing things that are working? And so I think when you ask questions about how someone goes about crafting a product or developing process and culture, some people are just focused on what's broken or are always just like putting out fires. And if something's working and they don't care about it. But I think the really good optimizers are those who find the best people on their team and make them better, you know, find the best attributes of their product and accentuate them and aren't just obsessed with fixing. Totally. Let's, uh, I want to move on to the, to the final mile. And there are a couple, couple things in the book that I want you to unpack for, for our audience. One was how you approach the sale of Behance and how you chose to not to travel that mile alone. Uh, and then also talk a little bit about how certain behaviors of some of the employees were sort of self-sabotaging in a way. Unpack that and how founders can be on the lookout. The final mile is a different sport altogether. It's funny because you'll you'll make all the right decisions over the five to seven years to get to that point where there is an end. And let's talk about a good end. And then suddenly the playbook changes. Your confidence in every decision you made does not necessarily make you ready to negotiate. It doesn't make you ready to figure out how to integrate a company. It doesn't make you ready to figure out how to communicate this to your team. And everything just suddenly changes, at least it did in my, in my experience. And so for me, the calculus of going through an acquisition as opposed to raising our Series B and Series C, you know, keep in mind Behance was five years essentially bootstrapped, two years as a venture-backed company. And the way I looked at it was, all right, there's three factors here. There's taking care of the team. There's taking care of the, of the community. And then there's also just like a financial outcome, like just pure numbers. 
the taking care of the team part was really about can we continue to do the best work of our lives? You know, can we continue to work together? You know, is this like a good mothership for us or not? Or are they going to just like pick us for parts and spread us across the company? For the community, it was really a question of, all right, we were a little over a million members. We were really growing fast at that point. But we wanted to get down to like the source of attribution for creative work. We wanted to integrate into the tools themselves. And we realized we could never do that unless we were part of a company that makes the creative tools people use. So we felt like this would actually make the Behance experience better. We also felt like we were being acquired for the right reasons as opposed to the wrong reasons. We weren't being used as a marketing channel or, you know, again, like leveraging the technology or the people, but it was actually the product itself. And then the financial side, the calculus was, all right, so we have a team that's been together for five plus years. There's some fatigue, there's some risk there. There is uh, at least another two rounds of funding in front of us if we're really going to go go the length of this journey. And there's also increased market risk, as there always is. And we were being offered an amount that, you know, with very little dilution so far, we had only raised $6 million in our history as a company, a little over six. The numbers were actually kind of the same. It was sort of an apples to apples comparison as after I factored in all these different dilution points and market risk and everything else. And so, you know, that, that was the calculus for us. I think that's what teams have to go through when they're deciding, you know, whether to uh, go through an acquisition or not. And I think the fairy tale of, oh, you know, every company is a public company or every company is a billion dollar company is, um, is silly. Every company is different. And then self-sabotage, you asked quickly about other things that can go wrong in the final mile. And I think that it was interesting. You know, I saw on my team, some folks that didn't feel they deserved it, you know, and started to act out in some ways to subconsciously hinder their success. And it was interesting. And I share a story in the book of pulling one of my uh, colleagues aside who had just been starting to act out in like strange ways and saying to him, like, after a few like warnings, you know, I kind of really got angry. I was like, I don't know, do I fire this guy? Like, what do I do? And I pulled him aside and I just was, I looked in the eye and I said, you know, it's okay. You deserve this. It's okay. He just started crying, you know, in the corner of a conference room. And I realized that this was, you know, hitting people in strange ways. And that again, like emotions fly and, and things do change when, when you enter that phase of a business. It's sort of like a variation of the Steve Jobs quote. I think he says something along the lines of you know, the people who built great things are no smarter than you. And it's, it's like the people who have acquisitions are no more deserving than, than you if you're in the same place, you know, in terms of your business. Right. So I want to zoom out a little bit. And in the context of self-awareness, I want to ask you questions about your own path, you know, now and going forward, because you know, in the last two years, you've, you're a writer, you're, you're an author, you're an investor, you're an entrepreneur, you're an executive. What have you learned about how you want to spend your time? What's most interesting to you and what you're best at and how you think about that going forward and what lessons can other people draw from your self-discovery as you've, have you explored these different paths and found what works for you and, and what's less interesting or, or less use of your skills? You know, it's funny. I mean, I've, I've always, when I was in high school and the guidance counselor was like, what do you want? Do you want a city school? Do you want a big state school, country school, you know, a small little town school? I was like, they all sound great. You know, I always had a hard time you know, feeling like I belong in one, in one particular context. And so I feel like I kind of went through that a little bit in my, in my, in my career as well. I mean, one lesson I learned, I've done a lot of seed investing since 2010, you know, and really have, uh, have become an active seed investor. And I felt like I was good at it. The reason is because I spend a lot of time with teams focusing on the potential of people and the potential of products. And 
You know, I help build design teams. I help think about the user's experience of a product. Like I have some areas that I'm, that are my like focus. And I just always was told by people that I knew or that I respected that, oh, you've got to be an investor. You just got to do it. You got to go in and you got to be an investor. And so after this 10-year period of Behance and being in Adobe for three years, I sort of said, okay, maybe I should do this. A lot of top firms are reaching out to me and wanting to talk to me. And I said, if I have the opportunity as a general partner at a top firm like Benchmark, I should take it. And so I just jumped in. Naive to a number of things. Naive, first of all, to the differences between early seed stage investing and kind of benchmark style post-traction series A and later investing. Very different. I also didn't realize like how uncomfortable I would be hanging, hanging up my spurs so easily. I just love being with product teams. I love building and solving problems. And when you talk about my new day job as chief product officer of Adobe, I'm solving so many problems. I mean, there's just like not, you know, not enough time. And it's exciting for me to like think about the future of creativity. I, you know, I, I feel like I'm sort of in my zone more. And so, but I, I think it took taking that jump to learn. So I look back at that point in my career and I was like, was I, did I fail, you know, and thinking that I should just go to a, you know, switch careers and do this and then realize that it wasn't for me. And I, I have to say, I think I certainly learned a ton and I obviously built relationships with the team there and, and I had a great experience learning. I also learned most of all that I am meant to be a hybrid. You know, I'm meant to build products and invest at the same time. Uh, do you have another book in you? <laughs> Not anytime soon, man, it's tiring. <laughs> yeah. If, if you, des- if you did, what would be your next topic? I think it would probably be, I've never, you know, there's a, there's a section of the book that I actually shaded differently in the middle. It's all about product. And I had so fun, so much fun writing that. And I think there's actually, I'm fascinated by the connection between psychology and product experience. And I would love to just spend time doing like deep research on, you know, why we make certain choices, why we churn, you know, in products or why we retain in others. And what are the other sort of lesser known factors in a successful product experience. I can imagine embarking on a project like that, but not anytime soon. <laughs> How do you think about sort of maximizing yourself as a hybrid? Because the challenge and opportunity of the hybrids when it comes to strategy or when it comes to skills is it, it can be the, the best of all worlds and you know optimal and it can also be the worst of all worlds. How do you think about in terms of you know where you should be spending your time within the hybrid? Is it, hey, I should take, you know, no more than five meetings a day or no less than than three, yeah. you know, versus writing versus I mean, the other thing that I, that I learned from my, you know, short venture through venture capital is that I'm most happy when I feel fully utilized. It doesn't matter how much money I'm being paid or what the title is. Like, I, I need to feel fully utilized to be happy. And so I actually started to just manage my time, you know, in a way that keeps me fully utilized. And so for me, I need to meet with a few entrepreneurs every week. It's just a part of my you know, muscle I want to, I want to hone. And it also helps me stay nimble and bring agility to a big company. I also, you know, I'm enjoying figuring out how to like shift product strategy and culture at a huge company. And I, I find that to be like a fascinating discipline that people underestimate the, the, the potential of because, you know, startups dream of having millions of people at the top of their funnel of their products. You know, Adobe has millions and millions of people at the top of the funnel and, and we just have to figure out in some ways, what to do with all of them. And that's part of the, the challenge to build new, you know, modern creative products. So 
as a hybrid, I think I have found kind of the balance of what makes me feel fully utilized, which, you know, I think makes me, makes me happy. And that's just the rough math I've been using. Do you have a certain thing where it's like, I do better work during the day. Like I meet entrepreneurs in the late afternoon versus writing during the morning, or is it more flexible in that sense? You know, I, I typically just based on like necessity, I'm typically having breakfast or drinks or dinners with entrepreneurs. And I also take some time on Friday to um, be able to connect with folks in my portfolio and help folks out or, or, or meet new companies. So it's, you know, I, I am sort of thinking about it to some extent in that way, you know, but no week is ever the same, right? Yeah, that's what I mean. Today's Friday, and now that I think about it, you've helped us on other Fridays. So, uh, <laughs> yes, consistency. So, yeah, with just a few minutes left, I think one question I want to ask is about you know putting your investor hat on, your hat on, your entrepreneur hat on. One thing I think that's a little bit underexplored is is where to build companies. <laughs> a lot of talented people who have sort of generalized skill sets don't necessarily have the skill to sort of evaluate markets or, or think about startup ideas. How do you advise entrepreneurs to, to think about ideas? To, should they have top-down you know, analyses of markets in the way that like Keith or boys like, you know, pick a market that has low NPS and is fragmented and build right. a solution? Or should it be more, oh, hey, this is an interesting feature that could be... How do you think about that? Well, a few, a few thoughts. You know, one is um, I think that the best products, in my experience, are built out of empathy for the customer suffering the problem as opposed to passion for the solution. And honestly, nine times out of 10, I feel like startups are founded by people passionate for a solution because you just, you see the vision, you see the end state, you're like, this is what we got to do. And then we do it. And then we, yeah, we check it with customers along the way. And then we wonder why we're 30 degrees off product market fit. And it's because it wasn't governed by empathy. We're shoulder to shoulder experiencing the pain day to day and like building something. That's why I like that sort of Nike concept of building for a specific athlete and knowing that if you get that athlete happy that other people who want to be like him or her will probably want the shoe, right? So I I really subscribe to that. There's ways of testing for empathy. There's ways of of also like fostering, you know, the the culture of anchoring with customer empathy when you already are up and running. And then I also, you know, I love working with entrepreneurs that do things that are remarkably unscalable in the beginning. This is something Bill Gurley would often say as well is like, you know, that Fast businesses are remarkably unscalable early on. And I really share that belief because um, back to the art versus science idea and also what you're willing to do that no incumbent would ever do. I mean, think about it. The, the things that some companies do when they're starting out, like whether it's Airbnb photographing professionally, everything that's on the platform. And there's a million examples of this for, uh, for great companies. Those are things that big behemoths would never do because it's completely unscalable. Someone would share that in a meeting and be laughed out of the room. And so I, I also look for companies that are willing to just get in the weeds, be really, you know, door to door and do like unscalable mundane stuff to make it work. Because once they get it working, you know, that's when they can apply a unique skill set and modern technology to scale. Yeah. Eric Stromberg uh, from Oyster and then Bedrock told me the framework of He's looking for businesses that are hard to scale from, from or hard to get off the ground from year zero to three, but then easy once they work as, as opposed to, and Airbnb is a perfect example, as opposed to years that are easy to get off the ground, like years zero to three, but then hard to be defensive. Oh, totally. I mean, Uber, it's funny, like Uber, people talk about it as the perfect marketplace from a scalability perspective. I remember when the team was actually going to limousine companies and like just getting them in the old fashioned dispatchers to like source Ubers for people that were 
ordering them. I mean, it was a totally hacked, unscalable system in the beginning. And uh, it's funny how like, people forget that you know, when a company starts to actually work at scale. Yeah, totally. Awesome. Well, that's a great place to close. The book is The Messy Middle. It's a fantastic book. Buy it, read it, give it to your friends. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Any uh, last minute plugs for where people can learn more online about you, your work, and what they should stay tuned for in the future? Well, I love what you guys are doing. And um, it's so exciting to see these like new mo- new models for venture capital and just for stewarding the ecosystem of entrepreneurs. So not that I need to plug you and because everyone knows already, but I, it's, it's just really exciting. You know, I'm a student of this stuff. So I encourage folks to uh, reach out to me if I can be of any help. Thanks again for having me on the show, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 